Darmstadt on Air, number two. The not quite innocent bystanders. Jaron Deutsch in conversation with Irvin Aditi. Hello and welcome to the second edition of our new podcast Darmstadt on Air, a series of conversations on music and experiment. My name is Silvia Freidank and I'm part of the Darmstadt Summer Course team. First of all, we'd like to say thank you for the many positive reactions you gave us on the first episode. With our podcast, we are trying to build a bridge between the summer of 2020 and the summer of 2021, because due to the COVID-19 pandemic, our festival and academy had to be postponed by one year. Normally, the Darmstadt Summer Course is a place where musicians, composers and performers of around 50 nations come and work together. And it's a place of personal exchange. So we've asked some of our tutors and guest artists to host a conversation on a subject that is important to them and to choose a dialogue partner for it. In this second podcast, we have two outstanding musicians talking to each other. In London, Irvin Aditi, the founder and first violinist of the Aditi Quartet. And from Tel Aviv, Jaron Deutsch, who is the founder and guitar player of Ensemble Nickel, and he's also our Darmstadt guitar tutor. They actually never talked before in real life, but had a very lively exchange via telephone before they recorded this conversation via Zoom on July 16, 2020. It was Jaron's idea to get in dialogue with Irvin Aditi and to reflect upon the importance of interpreters for bringing new pieces into life. Because, as Irvin puts it, the score is just the starting point. Enjoy listening. From London and Tel Aviv. I'm Irvin Aditi. And I'm Jaron Deutsch. Welcome to our podcast. Starting right after this. Here are three things you didn't know about my podcast partner. He is an avid tennis fan, sometimes watching two games at a time. At age 15, he already traveled to Darmstadt to hear Stockhausen. And while a student at the Royal Academy of Music, his partner in crime on Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time, was no other than the yet unknown Simon Rattle on piano. And here are three things that you don't know about my podcast partner. He found his first guitar in an ad in an Israeli army magazine. Throughout his youth, he was a dedicated goalkeeper in his hometown youth football club. And it was a complete stranger who enrolled him to the Jerusalem Music Academy after noticing him play at a local music shop. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, The Not Quite Innocent Bystanders. I'm happy to be here with Irvin Arditi, violinist, founder and leader of the Arditi Quartet. I'm Jaron Deutsch, guitarist and member of Nickel Ensemble. 
On the interplay between natural selection to artificial selection, it seems interpreting artists are most vulnerable to stand the test of time as the wheels of music evolution roll on. From Ars Antiqua to conceptual music, from Perrotin to Steen Anderson, the glory of sound is to remain the domain of its envisioner, the composer, while the instrumentalist's role is to fade through the years. Richard Burbage, Shakespeare's first Hamlet, Othello, King Lear, and Richard III would be our most loyal witness to the above. And in music, the examples are no less dramatic. Diving into the art of performance, its legacy, and impact on creation, the idiosyncratic methods of the participants, and the new possibilities technology and media allow instrumentalists to frame their art will be at the heart of this podcast. Hi again, Irvin. Nice sharing this talk with you. I recall that after I sent you this synopsis proposal, you replied, a sensitive subject. You want to talk about us fading into insignificance? No, <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to talk about it because it's going to happen. <laughs> that is indeed certain. But on a more concise tone, I'd like to address the thought that a good chance for us to slightly overcome the fading away, which awaits us all, is our ability to be singular in our art and individual in our output, as if we almost put a watermark on it. So I'd love us to start by asking you, or what is your, or making your work, or how you approach your work singular? What is that thing that makes the Arditi sound or the individuality of what you do from, or did you even give a thought about that matter? I didn't give much thought to it for quite a long time. But then people say they have an Arditi sound. Um, I'm not sure I, I like that. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I know what an Arditi sound is. And sometimes they say, oh, they have an Arditi sound. They don't they don't play with much expression. So sometimes it's good good to, to have an RDT sound, and sometimes, as far as they're concerned, it's bad to have an RDT sound. You know, when I grew up, there were lots of classical violinists playing, and they all had very strong identities. In fact, you could probably tell who they were without knowing, just by hearing them play, just by hearing a recording. I'm talking about people like Yehudi Menuhin, etc., yeah. Isaac Stern, Fischer Elman. Of course, they played in a different style. They played um, with much more portamento. But, but, you know, they all had their individual sounds, and it, it didn't sound like so much like the composers. It's like the performers wanted to identify this, themselves, their own special sound, with the music. And I think the, the music was secondary. Today, classical soloists, I don't think, do that. I think they're more honest to the music. There are lots of very good classical soloists, a lot of whom who play contemporary music. And they have, I mean, I'm not sure if you can tell who it is. Interesting. By just listening. But... I think they're thinking about the music first. So basically, uh, I, I think we can recognize here a difference between maybe you and me, because in a way you are in the hierarchy of things, you mentioned that, if I understand correctly, that from your perspective, 
too much identity, too much this personal sound, it changes that balance between the music, putting it first and maybe keeping a bit distance from it, or mm-hmm. you are intervening when you give too much from that singularity of yours inside the interpretation. I think I would agree with that. And I think very early on, I, I learned that contemporary music had many faces. You know, if you were, if you were playing early Berio or, or Nono or Ligeti or Kurtag or Elliot Carter, perhaps it was useful to have a different sort of string sound. Hmm. Carter's music is very classical. It doesn't always sound like that because the rhythms are complicated. But if you practice one part of a string quartet or you practice one of the solo pieces, um, it's probably advantageous to play with quite a classical sound with vibrato quite a lot of the time. There are so many composers that write at the beginning of their scores no vibrato throughout. And, and I had this with, with Sonakis when I was 17, going to his studio and trying to understand his violin piece, Mika. Yeah. And um, it wasn't totally clear that the whole piece was about, about oscillation. Um, but I said to him, what well, do you really need to write at the beginning of every score? No vibrato, if that's what you want. And a lot of composers followed that afterwards and wrote absolutely no vibrato. They're wanting a new string sound, a yeah. different string sound. Um, and I think probably we came along and were able to do that easily. The conscious desire to perhaps produce different string sounds for different composers um, forces you to create a different sort of concept for interpretation. Um, and I think coming from the no vibrato and not coming from a more classical sound, um, we perhaps do or did sound cold to some people who are used to that other sound. But for me, this was absolutely the direction to go in. I knew the composers. I was friendly with them. I went and ate with them. Some some of them came to my house to rehearse with us and stayed and ate. Um, I got to know what they liked. I got to know them as people, and I wanted to find an interpretation for their music that suited them, suited their personalities, suited what they want, even if sometimes they didn't know it themselves. To a, to quite a large degree, some composers were just really happy with the with what we gave to them. So it was a very much a two-way thing of communicating. Sure, I fully sympathize with that, and I, I don't think it's all different. I think it's definitely a two-way uh, street. But to me, even when you define what you mentioned, cold or uh, getting away from vibrato, I see in such a scenario an opportunity because uh, let's say if it's a binary wo- world, I would imagine that I, I know it for myself at least that when I recognize these uh, binarities or ability to say, oh, this one does that and this one does that. Maybe I will, I will look for a third way because for me personally, the ability to uh, create that singularity or identification is, is not at all uh, attempting to harm the music or uh, get uh, beyond it, but it is a proposal that offers something that I feel very connected with besides the fact or let's say a phase after your 
playing the score correctly because I don't see a contradiction between the two. And maybe I can give an example, which I'm sure you, you experienced many times, but sometimes you play for the first time a piece for a composer that maybe you even, even didn't work with before. And through your suggestion, through how you imagine, through how you channeled it, one discovers a new thing or a new proposal or a new uh, a scenario of sound that is sometimes beyond that specific thing of musical instruction. And, and in that sense, I think that uh, the individual differences between performers is probably opening such a world of possibilities to create that self-definition that is so important to every artist eventually. Yeah, I mean, sure. The score is just the starting point. Yeah. But something you mentioned earlier um, about you finding a third way. Um, I don't want to listen to other people, so I want to find my way. So it's not a question of listening and, um, and deciding, no, I don't want to do what they did or what they did. I want to do something of myself. I prefer to start from zero, so not know what other people did. Because... Um, with maybe 70% of the repertoire we play, we're playing it for the first time. We're creating the interpretation. So one gets very experienced at, um, at preparing something to a high level. It's not, we don't need 10 performances to, to have a vision of a piece. Sure, if you have 10 performances, maybe technically it gets better if it's a really complex piece say of Fernihau, for instance, or a composer like that, then technically you can improve it. You can, it's, it's always a constant challenge. But, um, but interpretatively, I think one has to get it right soon on, not 10 performances later. And so th for this, you, know, you need some direction, some idea of how to, how to work at a score, what to make of it. And once once you do that, once you do it on your own without listening to anyone, because most of the time there isn't anyone, we're playing the premiere. Uh, you know, even, even playing some classical music, I don't listen to the way other people play it. We discussed this the other day. Um, Janacek, um, Nielsen, Shostakovich. Why do I want to hear the way people play it? I, I want to... I want that music to challenge me. I want to be inspired by it. I want to do it the way I see it. There's no point for us to imitate the way other people play it. That's the one end of it. The other side, we work with the composers. It's handed down to me from them. But something you said, you know, there's not only one way to play something. You know, different perspectives open up and other groups now play pieces um, sometimes in a different manner to what we play them and they haven't worked with the composer and the composer's no longer here. It doesn't mean what they do is not valid because I work with the composer because I knew what the composer wanted with us playing it. But if another group had been there, the composer might have chosen a slightly different direction, might have done, in relation to the way that group could play the piece. And so I'm handing down our history. 
that's interesting because you immediately mark something that is, is singular to you. And maybe I'm able to now focus myself a bit better into this talk because um, naturally with the group that I'm associated with, Nickel, uh, most of our repertoire, actually all of it, is premieres because yeah. this instrumentation is not uh, uh, existing. We are constructing it in time. Often... Uh, we are a quartet and the mentality of chamber music is derived from that tradition. But sometimes when I'm thinking about what you mentioned before, the third way or another way is not actually in the context of a, that specific genre. I mean, I know sometimes how electric guitar is sounding in that album or in that performance, or in that context. And our saxophonist, uh, he, of course, has a huge reference from the world that uses more saxophone. So when you bring that into contemporary classical music, you can imagine that we are dealing as well with lots of connotation and psychological stimulation of what that sound is. When one fuses four perceptions that relate not only to the composition, which is a premiere that has to be handed down or a, being a, a representative of a beginning, a starting point, but you're also dealing with a reference that is connected to other worlds and manners of sound production in those specific instruments. And therefore, I find it challenging how to make that guitar sound, managing to get away from a psychological context, but eventually to also resonate what my impression of the piece is and maybe who I am as a player. And maybe you feel uh, differently than me because you're coming from a world where the strings are existing and coming from the same root. Yeah, I think, I think the two groups are extremely different um, because in a way the string quartet, I consider our work is based on tradition. The string quartet is tradition I'm interested in tr the tradition of the string quartet the, as it built up from Haydn through Beethoven, late Beethoven, Schubert, um, into the 20th century with Schoenberg, uh, Bartok Schoenberg and Second Viennese School and so on, and then to the composers that we encouraged or sometimes other people encouraged to write lots of string quartets. That's a kind of a tradition, and I've been interested in furthering the tradition of the string quartet. Um, so I think the two groups are very different. Your, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, um, who chose the instrumentation of your group? Basically, to make a long story short, it appears in a piece by Louis Andresen from 1991 called Hout, where these four instruments are uh, joined together for the first time. And besides that, all the other concrete repertoire for such a quartet came from us. But when I experienced for the first time uh, this piece, I had that uh, a light bulb, this eureka light bulb of saying, here is a moment to be individual. Because when I studied in the academy, much of, of the education was copying and learning how others are playing, you incorporate it in your style, and from that you grow. But at a certain point, I felt that what the academy, the academic world is doing, is not only that it gives you this knowledge and tradition and past, but it, in a way it frames you. And at a certain point, I was feeling that I am framed into a culture that is 
originated from African music and American music. And you see me now on Zoom talk and you see that I'm not actually from there. <laughs> and thinking that my roots are uh, European roots. My family immigrated from Transylvania. Uh, I think you played a few composers that come from that region as well. Uh, a few, yeah. <laughs> at a certain point, I had this feeling that, who am I? What musician do I want to be? Only fingers for rent or one who can make all those uh, impressive technical licks that others played? Uh, is that at all my culture? And therefore, I went away completely from music. I remember my tutor was so angry at me, at me because I did not come for the private lessons for one year. But I took this time off more than one year, actually, for a few years to just understand what kind of music can I play in which I can feel that it is indeed myself and not a copying attempt. And when I came across that piece from Andresen, uh, it was as if everything fell in place. You can be an individual. You can find something new. It is connected to my European roots. And everything still with the world of instruments that also resonate the changes of the world in the 20th century, the saxophone and percussion who evolved. You can find it in Varese, but you can also find it in the marching bands in the Deep South. All of that helped me a lot with finding yourself. And when your identity is clearer, the art that you can present is naturally more singular, more individual, and allows you to a little bit feel more creative. And that's how the, the group instrumentation came about. So maybe you, maybe you need... Yeah, maybe you need to be more creative because you have such an individual group that there is no tradition, really. Yeah. You're talking about traditions of how to play the guitar and saxophone, etc. But there's no real tradition set up um, for your group. was an excerpt from Mark Barden's Witness as performed by Nickel in Darmstadt's Orangerie. Maybe let's touch a little bit two things that I think are uh, constructive to understand an interpreter's character or singularity. And one is this act of preparing an interpretation, but I also think uh, no less important is with who am I working with? And I think with the Arditi Quartet, your range is giant. A good example is your catalog of Fernihau uh, pieces and the correlation between the two entities is just fantastic. So I, I would really love to hear how you come into that world of interpretation and decisions, these in advance decisions of collaboration and so on. What do you mean to the two entities? You mean the music of Fernihau and the I Quartet? Fernihau and Arditi Quartet. And why is that? I'm going to tell you why. Yes. Because, because we worked with him more or less from the very early days. Uh, we started in 74, but those first few years we didn't do very much. And I think 79, we, we came across, or 1980, we played the second quartet. And from then on, 
Brian has only written pieces for us. All the quartets were written for us, and the three pieces that involve violin were written for me. And so we have a very strong relationship with him. His music is incredibly complicated, as everyone knows, and a lot of groups can't or don't want to spend the time working at it. So we are identified with, with Fernie Howe. Sometimes I don't want to only be identified with the most complex That's music. Interesting. And I said that a long time ago. You know, I want to be also able to play other sorts of music. Sure. And we, I, I then started playing Cage and got to know Cage, and we got on extremely well. Sadly, we started playing Feldman after he died, but we gave the premiere with Sashko Gavrilov of his violin and string quartet, which is a two-hour, 20-minute miniature. But, you know, for me, it's important. it was important to be associated with lots of different sort of composers, not just complex music. Yeah. But you associate us with Fernihau probably because we're the only group that has played or recorded quite a lot of the pieces. In a way, we can learn from that. And you use these words of associate and identified. And I think they are very much of an importance to that thing that makes a certain artist singular and uh, with an identity. And this identification and association that you have with Fernihau is, is something uh, that, that we can only treasure because it really has something that is so unique for your quartet that the most obvious thing is when you want to hear Fernihau, you're going to, uh, first of all, search that Arditi interpretation. Of course, for many other composers, you did that, but Fernihau is really a very uh, obvious uh, example. I think, yeah, the difference is that probably there aren't so many other interpretations available by other performers of Fernihau works, whereas with Luckerman, Helmut, and Elliot Carter, for instance, lots of quartets play his music. Um but you can't find many other recordings of Fernihau. I know our friends in the Jack Quartet are, are playing some Fernihau pieces now, which is great. It's great to have some company. just heard an excerpt from Brian Fernihau's third string quartet played by the Arditi Quartet. When we discussed this issue of association and identification between the interpreter and the composer, I think it also allows us, again, in a binary thinking, to think, oh, that would be exciting to hear Arditi Quartet with something I'm not immediately thinking of. And when you sent me Schoenberg's Presto, I was just 
enjoying myself so much because I did not hear that version. And maybe let's hear a little bit of Arditi Quartet playing Schoenberg. Irvin, you have also things that as a soloist, you are very much identified with. And personally, myself, I very much love your Freeman attitudes. Not to make it sound as an interview, but maybe a little bit about how the interpretation grew and, and what is the Irvin uh, uh, spice that we can hear in those interpretations. From your perspective, how you thought about that through? I said that when the Arditi Cortez started, it was my hobby. <laughs> which it was. After some years, it became my profession. But playing solo music was my hobby. <laughs> and then I realized... Later, you, huh? Yeah. Uh, well, I think, no, I worked with Sanakis when I was 17 on his violin piece. But um, when the quartet took off, I had no time to, to, to play alone. It was my hobby, occasionally, for friends, composer friends. Um, or some people decided to write pieces for me, okay, I would play them. But I never advertised myself. So it, in a way, it's, it, it was always icing on the top of the cake. So I developed some pieces, some relationships with composers. For instance, Brian wrote all three of his solo pieces for me, the two solo violin pieces and the mini violin concerto. The cage thing was almost by accident my relationship um john cage did not warm to me i was the i was interested in the european avant-garde i was fascinated by stockhausen uh, by ligeti by sanakis boulez later and berio um and so cage didn't really appeal to me in the beginning um and i think the publisher peter's edition sent me the first book of freeman etudes with the first 16, I looked at them and thought, ah, they look ridiculous, ridiculously difficult, and I don't think they sound very interesting. So I put them in my cupboard, and they stayed there for about 10 years. And then a festival in London called the Almeida Festival uh, wanted us to play one of the quartets, and they said, would I play the Freeman Etudes in the other part of the concert? And I said, oh, I don't know. They're rather hard. I think I've got the music. I have a look. So I looked at the music and thought, oh, okay. They've been in my cupboard. Oh, oh, if they want me to play them, I'll play them. And I tried to make this story as brief as possible. I turned up at the Almeida in the afternoon of the concert or the morning of the concert. I don't remember when the rehearsal was. There was John Cage. <laughs> <laughs> I got on, I rehearsed them, I played them through to him, and he he was ecstatic, everything was wonderful. The, I mean, he was full of superlatives, 
usually with us, with the quartet, but on this occasion there were more superlatives. And I played the piece in the concert, and I don't know how long it took, more than one hour. And then I noticed the instructions in the score. It said you should play it as fast as you can play the most difficult music, and you should keep it constant. So the second performance took less time because I knew the piece better. And the third performance took even less time. And John Cage was at all three performances. Wonderful. And um, in the end, I said to him after, I think, the third performance, well, John, when should I stop with this speed? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, um, I'm not going to answer that, but I'm going to do something which is a long which is going to fulfill a long wish of mine to actually complete the Freeman Etudes. Beautiful. And I would like you to give the premiere of all 32 of them when I write them. When I hear number 17, I recognize you. I can imagine you on stage. I know how your bow bounces and, and, and this kind of uh, assertiveness that it has. And I'm really trying to think if it's something that you are trying to go for consciously or not. Because we talked a little bit about this and we spoke about spontaneity. I, uh, I'm trying to mark the differences between us. I'm completely not thinking in that spontaneous ma manner, as you mentioned, of opening a score and, and diving in it uh, uh, so naturally. I like to plan. I, mentioned, uh, I also mentioned to you this idea of composing my interpretation and through that portraying that individual sense that I'm trying to give. Of course, it's possible to play immediately, but it's just not my character. And we are trying to touch matters of character now in this talk. So when I heard number 17, I heard that that's clearly Irvin playing. It, it's, it's so obvious. So maybe I, don't, I, I don't know whether to thank you or not, but I know, I know we're going to listen to number 17, but I have to tell you that the premiere of number 17 was actually in Darmstadt. Well, Cage came with it uh -huh. and he presented me with it and said, this is the beginning of the second book. And I said, oh, well, I suppose I have to play it at the end of the courses then. And so I spent quite a few hours during the courses learning Etude 17, and I performed it, I think, in Speyer Cathedral, which was a ridiculous place to play it because it, it had a huge resonance. But anyway, music is not about talking. Maybe we should hear Etude hear 17. It. Wonderful. Thank <laughs> you. 
That was wonderful. Uh, you know, you mentioned that you took some hours during the course. I'm just thinking that myself, I recall that if we compare, and again, I'm always feeling a little bit embarrassed because by no way I can compare anything I did, so small quantity to, to the vast range and huge output that you have. But when I worked on music by Pierluigi Bilone, three solo pieces, one was uh, premiered in Darmstadt, I remember that besides each piece I spent almost a year studying and preparing, it took at least one, two, or three months just to find what sound that piece is. And, you know, with uh, Pierluigi, he many times knows how to play his pieces. He knows exactly what sound uh, uh, he imagines and he proposes the sound, he records. But to me comes the question, which is very important. If he can play it, if he has a quite clear idea of a sound, why am I here? Why am I needed? He should do it, right? So it amplified very much the question that, no, he wants me to play it, not because I'm probably better guitarist than him, because he's probably interested in my inner being, imagination, innovation, and what can I contribute that probably, uh, uh, well, his score stops, probably he expects a, a colleague, a partner, whom he trusts to take it further. And over there, I put lots of emphasis on, on, on taking that piece forward and for me requires much thinking. Maybe before uh, you react, let's, let's hear just a small segment of that and we take it from there. <laughs> That was nice, I, but I do like Pierluigi's music. Um, I just wanted to tell you my secret. Yes. Of doing but things quickly. Only, only to me or everybody can hear it? I'll, I'll whisper. <laughs> How about if I whisper? I'm English. <laughs> and what does that mean to the non-English? What does that mean? You see, nobody knows what that means, but because there's no money in this country or there wasn't <laughs> any money to do anything, everybody had to do things quickly. Of course, say that if you give a premiere of something and you've learnt it very quickly, that it doesn't improve tremendously when you have more time to look at a piece. But, you know, so many courses. I was in Darmstadt from 82 to 96 every two years. And so many courses. I mean, I think all of them, people came with difficult pieces at the beginning of the course and I performed them two weeks later at the end of the course and they expected that. Um so that that was part of my responsibilities as violin teacher and and performer, and we were playing two or three quartet concerts as well 
during the courses. It's very interesting because I sense from your words a, a, a sensation of responsibility. You, you think in this universal approach of being responsible and, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, I, I'm not sure I want such a responsibility. I want to, uh, as when you think about uh, uh, groups in other genres, they only play their own music, let's say, the music they wrote, etc. And sometimes I'm, I'm thinking in, in that sense that you take risks, you uh, enlarge the palette slowly and slowly, but exactly because what you mentioned before, being English, time is of the essence. We don't have much time. I think because we don't have much time, uh, I'm trying actually even to do less and less because in that less, you are trying to, let's say, allow yourself something that you can chew or bite on so deeply that that, uh, offers maybe another perspective. So, of course, we offer here two two approaches. Yeah, I think um, I don't want to go you know, to people to get the impression that we only do things quickly. We can do things quickly, therefore it takes less time to do it properly. And some things one has to do quickly or one wants to do quickly because it's not good or because you have no time to do it slowly. But, you know, when you can get to a, a certain level of accuracy doing it quickly, it then is way up the ladder for actually preparing the piece properly so it it the whole process can take less time and i want you to know that we inherited this responsibility you talk about my feeling responsible yeah um whereas some groups just play their own music i inherited this remember how we started as i said with no vision of anything that was going to happen i didn't have that and certainly it was my group in the beginning I had no vision that I would then be doing it professionally only. I didn't consciously want anything. It just happened. I didn't decide we're going to do this. Mostly it just happened. The whole experience snowballed. One composer said, oh, you should work with them. They don't look at their watches and say, oh, the rehearsal's finished now. They rehearse till they get it right, until you're happy. And so word got around and it just happened. It wasn't an instigated program with publicity, getting people interested, getting promoters interested. Promoters were interested because we were doing something that no other group was doing and certainly to a level that no other group was doing. So it's not like your group. It's not like other groups where you're playing your own music or the music you want to play. I was considering that the Arditi Quartet was continuing the tradition Hmm. of the String Quartet in the 20th century. Before maybe we conclude, there's one aspect which I find also very important in that perspective of, uh, let's say, fading or not fading into insignificance. And it is the world of recording that is, for me, the most obvious means to document uh, your output. And I'm wondering, maybe let's share some thoughts about that, because I find that medium to not only offer an ability to stay beyond time, but also it allows an ability to offer another perspective of interpretation. Because I know personally from our group, or from the work I do as a soloist, that 
the live interpretation has one uh, entity, one progression or a certain uh, scope it covers, but the world uh, that is in the studio and that documentation allows, and I'm not talking about editing, cutting, or creating things that are impossible. It is just another scenario. It's another atmosphere. When one plays a fermata in front of a public, you can really hear them breathe and you can manipulate the drama. But in the studio, your drama is uh, happening elsewhere, probably more internally. So maybe we can just elaborate on that a little bit. So for me, I think almost from the beginning, I learned to learn how to play in the studio like I was playing in the concert hall. So I didn't need the audience to cough and breathe because I was, I was playing with my breath and my... Um, sense of timing, not the audiences. Audiences can be misleading, totally misleading. Interesting. But I did not yet understand from you if you are trying to read something different when you are in the studio, or do you outsource it only to a tone meister to uh, overwatch everything? No, I like tone masters to overwatch, but basically we're in control of what we do in the studio. But I play like I'm playing in the concert. I don't play in a different way. Yeah. I try to capture the imagination and the energy, which is the most important thing. And that's quite hard to do when you're doing things repeatedly. Absolutely. And the best way to record is to record smaller sections, not to record a whole movement of something or a whole piece as obviously you know, because you concentrate on smaller sections and detail. The studio is an important place. It's an important place to get it right, but I simulate the way I play or the group plays in a concert. I think that's very important, yeah. and not to play in a different way. Obviously, you have to pace yourself a little bit, and um, also pacing yourself a little bit is good for technical things because you don't go quite as mad sometimes as you go in a concert. And I think for documentation, you talked about documentation, that's really important. And I started doing that a long time ago because, you know, in this world, unlike when we started, people can access things now. And it's important that people who can't get to concerts, um, countries we've never played in, can also have the opportunity to hear. Absolutely. And I want them to hear good recordings. Absolutely. Indeed, ma a massive uh, output of recording, Irvin. And uh, probably when we will finish, we will take the opportunity to also hear something that is not obvious at first thought from Nickel, actually an English composer, winner of the Kanichsteiner uh, Award from last time, Oliver Thurley. Uh, but before hearing that uh, and thanking you so much for the time and the wonderful talks we had, all through the week, um, I think we can both probably agree that we, the interpreters, are not quite innocent bystanders. Oh, I think we're not bystanders, and we're certainly not innocent. <laughs> Irvin, thank you so much for your time. A real pleasure. Keep safe and take care over there in London. And you keep safe and keep cool over there in Tel Aviv. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Mm -hmm.